Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for June 2016. I am writer hyphen jobs and growth in Medicare and education, high speed internet and stop the boats and $6,000 toaster, Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is Sophie Mayer, writer hyphen European. Um, I'm Maria Lewis and I'm a journalist and author and awkwardly timed person when giving these introductions. <laughs> Welcome, Maria. It's a pleasure to have you with us. No, thanks. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while, so I always, it's always like uh, I feel like you're b- breaking through an invisible wall when you get to go on a podcast that you're a fan of for a while. <laughs> um, so, of course, naturally, I won't listen to this episode, but I'm really excited to be on it. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Oh, we're very happy to have you with us, and uh, we're going to kick off by talking about three of the films of the past month, still going by UK release dates, uh, although The Nice Guys came out both places at once. I had never really been a fan of Shane Black until he became a director, and it was sort of that one-two hit of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man 3, which were oh, really funny, really Iron engaging. Yeah. Perfect. It Perfect is, isn't movies. it? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like I really feel um, The Nice Guys, which is the third uh, film he has directed, feels like the success at a Kiss Kiss. It's like a buddy comedy throwback to film noir detective films. I was sort of expecting something along the lines of the, the Long Goodbye, like a slacker detective. But i got to say, I'm, I'm really surprised this film didn't work for me. And I don't know if it's me or I don't know if it's the film, but I found the plot like too convoluted to really grab me. And at least half the jokes fell really, really flat for me. Lee, you're destroying all the argumentative potential of this show. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're supposed to love the film so that I can hate it. Otherwise, our Wardorf and Statler act has zero value. <laughs> That's true. I prefer the Shane Black of The Long Kiss Goodnight. I like films that have adult female characters in them. I am not a 10-year-old girl. This film is not going to be seen by 10-year-old girls if it is their parents need a talking to. The fact that the only viable character in it, and I have to say, it's an amazing performance from Angry Rice. You know, the Aussies are definitely doing something right, turning out actors there. But um, I couldn't put myself in this film anywhere. And the more I watched it, the more I just felt, and I keep saying this, but mainstream American cinema is just now like advertising for Donald Trump and his brand of politics. Incompetent, bad haired, seventies fantasy men where like all the women are either porn stars or like stone cold bitches, you know, Kim Basinger doing the Hillary Clinton routine. I like it's bankrupt. I'm done with it. Mm. Like um, American cinema needs to grow the fuck up. We've seen so much violence in the last month caused by toxic masculinity, and I am putting it squarely at Hollywood cinema's door. Wow. Wow. Fucking represent. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Burn him down, sister. That is 100% (laughs) right. And I... I, one of the big questions with this movie, look, I, I liked it for the most part. I think it's a lot slower than... um, than some of Shane Black's other work. It moves a lot slower, but hey, I did enjoy it. Um, but the big question I wanted to know was where were all the bras? You know, I feel like every woman in this movie deserved like an extra, I don't know, few K on her paycheck for having to get through the shoot without bras. It's the same thing I yeah, felt with yeah. American Hustle. I was like, yes, okay, I get it. It's supposed to be a specific time period, but God damn it, you deserve some boob support for all this. Um <laughs> I think we should start a group called Boob Support, which is a support group for American A-list actresses. I think if we change the title of the podcast to Boob Support, our ratings will go through the roof. (laughs) Through the roof, guys. (laughs) Through the roof. I don't want to come in here and shake things up, but I'm just saying, 
<laughs> we could record it on pet tape. Yeah, there you go. Tits <laughs> for high fits. Like, it would be great. <laughs> but yeah, I thought this, generally speaking, moved a lot slower for me than um, other Shane Black movies. I think his Kiss Bang Bang is kind of like a perfect film. I also feel that same way about Iron Man. And always got really confused when there was like this weird kind of like sort of dislike of it through mm. people. But I, then you ask them the specific things that they disliked and they couldn't really put a finger on it. So with this, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I mainly, I didn't love it, but I liked it. And I thought the thing, the main thing that I liked, I guess, was the chemistry between um, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. That was really the thing that got me over the line here. But I do think it's also really interesting um, when you look at Hollywood and you look at what a what a cruel place it can be for women and for female actresses. And you look at an actress like Carrie Fisher and how women, just generally speaking, aren't allowed to age. They have to be these eternal kind of sex objects, et cetera, et cetera. And then you look at someone like Russell Crowe who literally walks the red carpet in a rabbit's jersey with a porch <laughs> and he can still just land like the top paying A-list movies left, right and centre and there's no diminishing in his career. And so I always find that really interesting, the level of how much he just doesn't give a fuck anymore, mm. but yet he's still just as like, just as busy as he ever was and doing a lot more interesting projects, I think, personally. Yeah, I... Yeah, Crow. I mean, for different reasons, Crow was a big question mark for me on this one because one thing I really enjoy in Black's work is his puncturing of machismo, uh, like in Lethal Weapon and in Kiss Kiss. He he loves setting up these manly personas and breaking them down, and I think Gosling is in is absolutely doing that. But Crow never gets into that gear. He's sort of in this violent, heavy mode, and but. Uh, <laughs> I don't think Russell Crowe knows that gear exists. I think, you know, <laughs> his car doesn't come with that gear. He's in order. Uh, he doesn't have a manual car. He, it kind of reminds me of the story about, you know, Charlton Heston in Spartacus, and they, they sort of couldn't tell him what the film was about. <laughs> right. They just, they just pretended there was nothing homoerotic going on, because otherwise he would have freaked out. So <laughs> it feels a bit like that with the nice guy. That, you know, maybe Shane Black kind of had this idea, and but they just couldn't tell Russell. <laughs> but then, this is the director who let, like, a little kitty toy manufacturer talk him out of putting a female villain in Iron Man 3. So. I know. God, isn't that ridiculous? I get so angry. It's not just the female Rebecca. villain. Rebecca Black, you know? Yeah. Rebecca Hall. Sorry, Rebecca Hall, Rebecca. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's cool. just incredible. Like, yeah. she would have been so great for that. Well, to the flip side of The Nice Guys and the Studio Ghibli film, When Marnie Was There, has just uh, come out in the UK. Beautiful, beautiful film about uh, a girl going away to stay with her foster parents' relatives and encountering a girl named Marnie. Uh, spoilers may exist. My favourite thing in about... In the title. In the title, yes, yes. Um, I've always loved, I've talked about this before, but I've always loved about uh, about the Ghibli films, how much they capture that the tactile nature of the world. And this one absolutely does this. It's it, it's sort of, that's my main takeaway. There's so many things in this film to love. But yeah, the fact that I always feel like I'm in this fairly basically animated, I mean, it's beautiful, but it, it's very, you know, it's very, uh, what am I trying to say? Um I feel like I'm there and I shouldn't because it's quite simple animation. Uh, but that's that sort of speaks to, to what I think they're absolutely brilliant at. Yeah, it's 
we've had a bit of a Ghibli fest here in in the UK this month. I don't know when it when the film came out in Australia, but we've had seen the re-release of a number of Ghibli classics and also Isao Takahata's Only Yesterday, which had never had a an English language release before. So mm. it's been a, such a it is like jumping into a pool of fresh clear water, not to get all wanky about it or anything, <laughs> but to particularly to experience, you know, these films on the big screen, some films that I've only known on DVD and to see how the studio has developed this really unique take on childhood, um, the way like I think Japan for me I've never been but I imagine it's so much modern Japan so much through the Ghibli films but when Marnie was there is is like another thing again it's it's adapted from a classic English uh, children's novel like Howl's Moving Castle was but one that's not very well known at all and it has this um, it's kept a Europeanness. So Marnie and her family are European. It's never really explained what they're doing in Japan, but it has something of kind of a Marguerite Duras novel or film about it. There's this kind of mysterious colonial past that's terribly sad um, and a real sort of emotional maturity that you associate with films like Grave of the Fireflies, but married to this very childlike, wonderfully um, present, as you said, like in the landscape, in the world story. I think it's really interesting. Um, what you, what you guys have said about the animation being quite simplistic, but it still has that same ability to, to draw you in. And I think uh, now, like with a lot of animated films, as the technology improves and improves, that's almost become one of the big selling points is how realistic or how like technologically advanced it is. But I think that's one of the things that has been missing, uh, particularly about some of the later Disney princess movies, um, but, you know, like post Princess and the Frog, which was the last 2D hand animated uh, Disney movie. But there's something really beautiful about that style of animation. Now, this is obviously mm. like it's, you know, it's it's in a world where parts of it are computer animated. But I feel like there's something that is lacking when you lose that communication between someone's hand and the figure and then the eye and then the final product that you receive as the audience. And I think that's one of the things that's always been really special about Miyazaki films is that you can feel the craft in it. You can feel the love. You can feel the man hours and the time that people ha and ha who knows how many animators probably, you know, hundreds, one hundreds have put into this to bring this story to life. And there's a weird kind of like wholesomeness, I guess that runs throughout all of, all of his movies. And I feel like, and all of the studio Gilby movies as well. And I feel like this is definitely part of that. I feel like if you sat a kid down in a room and the only form of like, you know, basically the only thing they had to grow up, um, the only piece source of media they had were Studio Gilby films. I feel like you'd end up developing this like really pure minded, um, socially conscious, artistic sort of adult if all they lived on was a diet of, of Studio Gilby films because there's um, a wholesomeness but a progressiveness at the same time that I just don't mm. think you find anywhere else. And I think that's one of the reasons they're so important as I guess a production house essentially. Can I just add to what Maria was saying with that this is the second most lesbian children's film of all time. <laughs> What's the first? Return to Oz. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that bit at the end when Dorothy talks to Ozma in the the mirror and Ozma's like, don't tell them about me and then winks. Yeah, um, totally. But so the the, the female friendships and 
not just with Moni in this film and the idea of a story that's passed down through different generations of women. It's just something that, you know, frozen aside is so missing in a lot of mainstream stories that are, are told for kids. Um, and the girls are all very adventurous and brave and courageous um, and loving. And it was just, it's a really special place to spend time. And so much of it is focused on the characters themselves doing things by hand. You just you can't imagine it ever becoming obsessive computer animated 3d mm. ghibli it just it doesn't work with the world view that is being celebrated perhaps a bit romanticized in it but you know i was sobbing like a baby at the end when the priscilla on song came on and i loved every minute of it from an a hinted at romance <laughs> to an implicit romance to an explicit romance holding the man this is not the- explicit enough not explicit enough. Um, I like that you're always calling for more, like more, more. <laughs> more, more, more it's very, uh, it's it's very Oliver Twist of you. Um, like that's because Oliver. we're on a starvation diet of good cinema, so we have to ask for more. Well, uh, well we ha- like we're in the cinema workhouse. I think that's really true. <laughs> Well, we uh, we sent you an Australian film, Holding the Man. Uh, the Aussie film has just come out in the UK. There's a lot to say about it, but I'm just going to say it features Hellas Hyphenate's alumnus Tegan Higginbotham. It's it's got a very very Australian flavour to it. How did you uh, how did you find it, Sophie? I'm not, I'm super interested to know what the reputation of the book and the play are in Australia because they're a little bit known over here in the in the queer community. Likewise, so they're, they're it, huge over here. It didn't have, I think some of the impact of it might have been lost for English audiences in terms of not having that association with the story that's been told in other forms. But I really enjoyed it. Um, You know, obviously I'm really familiar with the stories of um, HIV in the queer community, mainly from the American community uh, of the 80s and 90s and obviously from, from Derek Jarman in the UK. So having that different perspective having a story that is told um in a way that was both incredibly gentle and loving and also funny and political Mm -hmm. with these cameos by you know fantastic very well-known a-list australian actors popping up showing you know queer solidarity and a reminder of like the great history of australian gay cinema i just i really loved it it's been distributed here by peccadillo who are our lgbt distributor as part of um their annual pout fest and i think people have just been really moved by it and moved by the fact because it's perhaps not it's not as explicit as um you know some other directors it's it it's there for a mainstream audience. You know, you could go and see these, this film with your teenage kids and talk to them about that period in history, talk to them about um, the right to, to love. And yeah, I thought the decision to have the actors play the characters from when they were teenagers to when they were in their, their 30s and 40s was really interesting. And it gave the film a kind of sweetness that is really different from some of the his- the films that were made during that historical period that are so crushing. Like it, it gave you a sense that this was survivable in some way. And just by the end, yeah, again, I was like, it's, my, it's like my five stars for a film. I was sobbing like a baby. <laughs> it's like, how many hankies did I get through is the, is the star rating? And can I have Guy Pearce and Kerry Fox as my parents, please? <laughs> 
like bash mom and dad ever. That's the secret, How? though. Guy Pierce is really all everyone's father in Australia. <laughs> Kerry Fox is and Guy right? are all our parents. Amazing. <laughs> How's it been? How is it received in in Australia? Did, was it like this is a great rendering of a classic, or you know, I what do like people it, think? It was at, It was almost a, uh, a full year ago that it. I can't remember if it closed or opened the Sydney Film Festival, which mm. I, I guess alongside Melbourne would probably be a seminal film festival in the country, a kind of most important one, I, I guess. And I feel like it made a big splash at the time, but then I haven't really heard much about it since. And I, I wondered if that was just whether it get, got sucked up in the vacuum of Film Fest world where everything is um, is super hyper-condensed and then it kind of I, – I didn't really hear much about it and I, I did wonder, I was like, did this get a proper mainstream release or was this more art house? And I even felt like I, I wasn't seeing much of the actors on, you know, morning shows and radio shows and stuff like that mm. um, promoting flick. So, I mean, Lee, you probably know better than I do how, how it went, but I felt like – it made it burned really bright for a brief moment, and then kind of kind of disappeared. It was it was one of those films where it, um, it does really really well on the couple of screens that it's on. I th- I'm not sure exactly how many. It was one of those films that like did really well at like the Nova, for instance, but wasn't you know I, I, I don't think it quite had that crossover uh, breakthrough that it was hoping for. Yeah, no, I, and I, and I think that is like I, I mean, with the specific actors that they cast, um, they are well known in Australia and come from you know very popular Australian programs. I think that would have been one of the conscious decisions in casting them is that they have the ability for your everyday you know Joes and Jans to say, oh, it's that guy from you know Packed mm. the Rafters or whatever it is, insert name of title here, um, that it would drag them along and go to the cinema, but. <clears throat> It is it is a seminal Australian novel, um, a, a based on Timothy Conagrave's memoir, which came out in the nineties. And then the play is has been one of, I guess, the most widely performed and consistently performed LBGTQI plays of the past um, twenty years. I don't think this necessarily had the impact of the play for me, mm. um, just one hundred percent purely by the nature and the differences of, of film to stage. It kind of lost a little bit of that intimacy. But it was it was still a great film, and I think it's an important film. I think um, so often, like there's Australian things that get adapted, or we have like a fiftieth drug addiction in the outback movie come out in one year, and we're not necessarily willing to break out of the boundaries and try and make something different as an industry. Meanwhile, you know, you cross over to New Zealand, and they're just pushing every boundary. They're plowing deep into every subgenre, and I think a, a film like this, besides maybe um, the film that Alex Dimitriata starred in in 1998, Head On, which was a, a sort of different in story but similar look at gay culture within Australia. I don't feel like we've had something like that since, and I think mm. it's really important. I think that's a real shame because, um, because you know, as a people and as, generally speaking, big moviegoers, I'm sure they'd like to see themselves represented on screen more and with that kind of Australian flavour. Mm. Oh, I just wanted to give a shout out to Fiona Reese Jones, who was the hair and makeup artist on the film. And through my tears, I made a made a note of her name because I thought it was it it was such an extraordinary job. I mean, we're used to in Hollywood films seeing people aged up, but the way that she managed to carry those characters without special effects or prosthetics through that range of their lives, through getting sick. 
um, without either making a sort of horror film of it or, you know, a sort of hyper realism of it. You could tell that, you know, the actors were under there. But I found it really, really expressive within the realism, the work that was being done with hair and makeup. And I think those people, you know, tend to be really undersung. And it was such important work in the film. Mm. I agree. And I mean, practical effects to me, like there's obviously a time and a place for digital effects. And we've got so many many amazing films now that we would never have if we didn't have the advancement in digital effects that we did. But I'm such a big fan of practical effects. And mainly one of the big reasons is I think you get better performances from everybody in and around it if they have to physically interact with whatever that effect is i mean you look at the differences in a film like the thing and then you compare it to the thing prequel with um joel edgerton and mary elizabeth winstead and like 30 years has passed yet the original still looked better and i feel like you got better performances out of the cast and crew so with Mm. this i definitely felt that like if, if the actors are made up to look young and they physically look young it really helps for them in terms of the performance that they can go in there and really believe that they're in that scenario Absolutely. And uh, look, if we're doing shout outs, then a a shout out to Jake Levy, who I know who was in the film. And uh, just to to anyone who was in the cinema with me uh, when I was yelling, put your pants back on. It wasn't homophobic. I've just known the kid since he was 10. It was just inappropriate. Um, That's that's what was going on. That's a very special relationship with that film. (laughs) That's amazing. Lee's been exposed as a secret homophobe. Now we all know the truth. I'm sorry you had to find out this way. (laughs) Now we're about to talk about fan films. I personally have never really understood the appeal of fan films. I kind of have, but I, I get that people want to play with the universe and the characters that they love, and I totally understand fan fiction when it's written, but having made films and TV shows before, I don't understand why people don't hit a point during all of those hours of preparation and money spent and think, hey, I can't actually do anything with this, can I? I can't sell this anywhere. (laughs) Why didn't I put all of this effort into an original work? But hey, people love doing them, and the ready availability of technology combined with the mass distribution of the internet has made this an issue that the studios can no longer turn a blind eye to. Now, following a highly controversial lawsuit that Paramount filed against a Star Trek fan film called Axanar, uh, the lawsuit has apparently been dropped, but Paramount has done something quite extraordinary, and they've released guidelines for fan films. These are official rules that Paramount has set for fan films, and we're going to post a list of those rules in our show notes, so go to our website and check them out. But what do we think about this? Is Paramount engaging with the community or are they stifling it? Well, for me personally, this this specific incident all arose over a fan film called Axna. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be like a a feature-length fan film based off a a smaller one, a short called Prelude to Axna, both of which were founded, um, were crowdfunded on Indiegogo, right? So that's what they launched the lawsuit over. Now, where it gets really icky here is the guy who is behind the films, he uh, started to fight the lawsuit with funds from the Indiegogo campaign. So not actually, they, they weren't actually being used for the film. And then they were building a soundstage for it. They got professional actors in it. So the lines from when something's a fan film to when it's becoming an actual film got really blurry in that particular case. And I can't I 100% understand why Paramount launched a lawsuit. I think maybe the way they went about it was really flawed. But essentially, the the rules that they released, I, I was going through them, 
um, this morning and having a look and just thinking that they honestly were all pretty reasonable. Mm. They were things like the production must be less than 15 minutes, which to me makes sense, right? That's just like a longer short. The title of the fan production or any parts cannot include the name Star Trek. Now, a lot of this stuff is, for me, I'm like a fan film by nature is, is you love the thing, right? You love it so much. You want to add to the pantheon. You want to create your own version of that thing, which is all well and good. But the problem with Axnar was people were making money off it then. And that's always what this comes down to is if you're making money off a property that you don't own and off images that aren't licensed to you and characters and costumes and things like that, then, of course, the people who originally hold those licenses and characters and costumes and iconography are going to stick their hand up and be like, hey, the fuck you doing? Um, so with this, I think it's I think it's really tricky, but at the same time, I was looking at through the list of like guidelines and they were all pretty fucking reasonable. You know, it was things like, can you make sure the costumes are like officially licensed Star Trek costumes and creators of fan productions must not seek to register their works. Fan productions cannot imply any association to Paramount or CBS pictures. Um, it must be a family friendly production and suitable for public presentation. So that gets rid of like Star Trek porn. It has to be non-commercial. It has to be a real fan production with creators, actors, and participants that are amateurs. And I think that's the big thing. I think that's where we get really specific incidences here is that this was not any more a fan production. It was with professionals and they had built a soundstage for it and for future projects that they were going to make. And so it was kind of a, a bit of a, a sort of slippery loophole they'd found and I feel personally trying to exploit. So I think the guidelines that they released are, are, are fair enough, but I think Again, I think the way they handled it was what people had a big problem to. It kind of made it made it feel like there was a disrespect for Star Trek fans. But mm. really what I think it was is they're the gatekeepers of this universe. And by very definition, they need to look after it and look after all its best interests. And they're trying to streamline the types of stories and versions of Star Trek that are out there. And that, to me, made made a lot of sense. I had a whole set of very complex thoughts about this that we're going to refer to things like theatre history, changing <laughs> digital technology, but the words Star Trek porn have just wiped my brain. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I had some way more interesting than anything I could possibly say, but I, um, my first encounter with, with this idea in the flesh, like, I read a lot of science fiction i'd read fan fiction and knew about the fan fiction community but in terms of fan film was going to the hot docs uh film festival in toronto and going to see the documentary trekkies which had to be screened at a secret location because there was not permission from the whichever studio at that time and we're talking back in 2003 or 2004 owned the Star Trek property. So the festival were willing to screen it and it fit with their ethics, but because it was about fan culture and because it included fan film, um, they protected themselves by not um, releasing the location of the screening. And yeah, people did come People did come along, and I know documentary festivals at the moment are having a really hard time around the world with all sorts of questions in Turkey and New York and whatever, but I thought that was a really ingenious solution. People did come along in, in costume, and, um, you know, Toronto has a big fan uh, science fiction and comic community, which we might talk mention a little bit later, 
And just seeing the passion of the people involved in that film and the, the effort that went into creating costumes sometime. And this is before the reboot, so official costumes weren't necessarily always available to everyone. It sort of really fascinated me and it fascinates me what gets those kind of fan communities like where is the orange is the new black fan film (laughs) you know i did donate last year on indiegogo to a an x-men fan film um called rain which is recentering the character of storm and i think that's where fan film like fan fiction can make such a difference is that as a fan community you can say hang on a second you've totally betrayed the one female character of color that was always reliably been part of the canon and and, and who wasn't want- a character that was necessarily black storm or black panther or <laughs> black lightning you know, she exactly. was one of the big things about that character is they never had to put black as the preface in front of it. Yeah, and she, her role had been completely minimised in in the more recent prequels. And someone uh, who's a martial arts uh, specialist decided they wanted to make a film recentering her, and it's toured to a lot of festivals. And I think it would be very difficult for the studio to come out and say, we don't like that because in essence, the fan community can say, well, we own store more than you do. Yeah. Um, And I think, I think that's great and that's really powerful, but where it is just, as you said, making money of properties that other people have previously established, that's, Mm. that takes the joy out. And I think people in the community would be really pissed off to have donated to that and then found out, Oh, well, it's going into making something professional that I can't get involved in. And, and I think that that Storm thing, like, I don't know how they're doing it, but uh, you could imagine something like that fitting easily within the guidelines that Paramount, I mean, it's a different studio, so it doesn't apply, but the, the yeah. general guidelines that Paramount set. Whereas, yeah, once you get to a certain level of professionalism and money, you're no longer fans innocently playing in a sandpit. The picture that I think people should stick above their beds if they're going to make a fan film, they should... Uh, it should be Steven Spielberg on the set of Indiana Jones. He made that film because he couldn't direct a James Bond film. This is how new work gets created. And if you have half a million dollars and you can't make a Star Trek film, good, write the next Star Trek. Go do that. Um, and the other thing is that if, if the, the Star Trek porn thing isn't um, possible, then I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my Kim Kardashian uh, fan film uh, that I made. Um, I might just have to leak, <laughs> leak that onto the internet. I'm really waiting for the Kardashians to release a set of guidelines for fan films <laughs> of Kardashian sex tapes. But yes. that's the thing. I don't think there is any shortage of Kardashian porn out there. So I don't think that's necessarily a market that's crying for it. So I think what we're saying is is find your niche. You know, yeah. the thing that you want to make already exists. Don't just remake it. Make something that is addressing a niche that your community wants or that you think can, can fill a gap. Indiana Jones definitely did that it's it's inspired something incredibly different from James Bond with very different valence and creativity and I think I feel the same about Maya Glick's uh, rain film like that's mm. not a storm we were going to get in the X-Men and I have seen you know fan film and fan fiction that, that does that um, And but I think this sort of reproduction I think we can lay the blame at the feet of Jack Black can't we uh, be kind be kind be kind be kind I, just, I just wanted to make one more point which is can we also have guidelines to stop hollywood studios from making fanfic fan films <laughs> of hollywood films like enough with the reboots and the remakes but also they have to do that Ray, too. yo that was yeah. fanfic 
that got made into a book, that got made into a movie. The Mortal Instruments, that terrible bloody City of Bones, and then now that's a TV series as well. That was Harry Potter fanfic. They got made into a book, they got made into a movie, that flopped, and now it's being made into a TV series. It's just like, it's like the snake eating its own tail over and over and over again. Totally. All right, Maria, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hell is for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month? The one, the only, Guillermo del Toro. Excellent. Very exciting. He's the best. <laughs> he is the best. He's a, a filmmaker that, he's my favorite director, and he's been one of my favorite filmmakers for, you know, forever. I remember being, the, my first exposure to Guillermo del Toro, and a movie that's still in my top ten right now and has been since I saw it was being in high school and going to see the sequel to a movie that I loved, which was Blade and walking into the cinema and seeing this flick Blade 2, which was just unlike anything I had ever seen before. It was terrifying, but it was cool as hell. And it was just the kind of perfect for me, everything a blockbuster should have been, everything like an adult blockbuster should be. It was, like it played with all of my horror loves and sensibilities and then it had an amazing Moss Def and Massive Attack track and like slow my walks in, you know, it just hit all the nails on the head for me and was really thoroughly enjoyable and had diversity and, and representation in movies before I even understood why that was so important. I was always looking for this stuff and looking to see a version of myself reflected back on screen and never finding it. And then here was this movie which had actors across the pantheon of ages and races and genders and sexualities, which I really loved. But when I got a little bit older and worked out, you know, where to source movies from, Guillermo was kind of a filmmaker that I just absolutely adored because he did horror with a purpose, you know, like generally speaking, his career has, he's directed, uh, I'm sure how many feature films, maybe about 10 feature films, but pretty much everything he's done has come from a place of deep love. He's loved that thing and he loves horror and he loves monsters and he loves um, kaiju and Godzilla and he loves action movies and his love literally projects off the screen into the people in the audience and that's one of the things I really enjoyed. His first flick, um, Kronos, was this... I don't know if anyone, if you guys have seen it, it's mm-hmm. this beautiful kind of like vampire story about an, a grandfather who becomes a vampire and his daughter, our uh, granddaughter. And they basically kind of negotiate this weird world where he gets made a vampire by a fucking clock, <laughs> um, which is, is just like the most ludicrous premise, but it's, it's given such care. He really is so gentle with it. That is just like, he gives, it doesn't matter how ridiculous the idea is. He really treats it with the utmost seriousness and just every scene just looks like you could lick it. It just is so beautiful <laughs> and there's a real heart to it. And I think that is one of the things throughout the horror that he's done. One of the things I've responded to the most is that there's heart in it. Um, Mimic was, uh, I guess, his his uh, one of his other really well-known, more cult films, I guess, but The Devil's Backbone um which was so he Cronus was in Spanish and the Devil's Backbone was in Spanish as well and that was basically a, a ghost story set within the Spanish Civil War at an orphanage and it was just this really beautiful mystery but at the and a horror movie sure but at the same time it was something that again really had a lot of heart to it and really had sentiment to it in the same way I think um, movies that he's written and produced 
have also had that same kind of heart and sentiment to it. I mean, specifically a flick like Mama, um, which had Jessica Chastain in it and uh, Nikolai Costa-Waldo from Game of Thrones. He was the the producer, I think, co-writer on that. And that is a movie that had like an aspect to it that I'd never seen examined, you know, using the, the power of a mother's love and turning that into a horror premise was really incredible and really, really beautiful. And it's even same with flicks like that he's produced from a distance, like Spy and The Orphan and um, all that kind of stuff is just, there's like a, a level of care. But I mean, at the end of the day, the thing that I've really loved is that how he can do something on an epic scale and it still have meaning. You know, it feels like more than a popcorn movie to me. Pacific Rim and Hellboy and Hellboy 2 particularly are just those movies that are just on an epic scale, as epic as it could be. But when I left the movie at the end of the day, yes, I'd been entertained for two hours or whatever it was, but I had like a warm feeling inside of me. And it's the same for things like Pan's Labyrinth, which is so dark. It's such a dark movie and something like Crimson Peak as well, which came out last year. And I don't think maybe necessarily found, um, found the audience he was hoping for. But to me, I thought again, was a beautiful film. It was less of a horror movie and more of like a, a Gothic love story. There's just something about his work that is just so beautiful. And I also really love, um, they're kind of the hallmarks of a director. You know, I love things when you can look at a movie and know, so-and-so directed this and I feel like that's definitely one of the things that Tim Burton has lost in the later half of his career is I don't think he can tell if something's a Tim Burton movie anymore it's Mm. kind of it feels like he's almost a director for hire and a lot of them are but one of the things and one of the the, uh, I guess elements that makes a true auteur for me is that you can look at that movie you could look at a still or a scene from a flick and go oh so-and-so directed that or like that's a Guillermo del Toro jam or like that's Quentin Tarantino or that's Spike Lee or that's Spike Jones. And I feel like you can do that with Guillermo. There's, um, there's little hallmarks all throughout his movies, which are, are things like, uh, he always has, um, some element of like clockwork through it, <laughs> which I think is just like the weirdest little fetish to just have running <laughs> throughout your movies. But there is always like some clock gag or like some clock, um, design element in it and I think um, because he's he's quite an extraordinary artist as well um, and has a real real understanding of the whole scope of the thing I think that's what makes his work truly special is somebody who who has worked across a lot of different areas of the film industry someone who's been second unit and has edited and casted and decorated sets and all that kind of stuff and worked in the art department and produced and written I think he has a really good understanding of the sum of the parts you know he understands it's not just one thing it's got to be a thousand things all linking together and linking together perfectly for it to to make a make a really great film Maybe that's where the clockwork obsession comes in, that he's showing showing us his model of filmmaking, you know, that every cog in the film is valuable. Um, Two things really struck me re-watching a lot of these films. One is um, that the tenderness that Maria talks about is also for actors, which in genre Mm. cinema is not a given. Yeah, um, so you can you can have genre directors who produce absolutely brilliant visions that stay with you for a long time, but you don't necessarily feel that they're bringing out amazing performances from their actors. And 
you know, whether it's like Idris in Pacific Rim getting, you know, the the starring role that he should be having or the young girl who plays Aurora in Pan's Labyrinth, there's just this feeling that, you know, going back to what we were saying about the Studio Ghibli, there's something real that's being made here in between humans. However much CGI is going on around them or practical effects or gothic horror, there's this concentration on human beings. So that was one thing that really came across for me. And the other thing was that he is such a Renaissance man, not only within film, but outside it as well. He's writing novels, he's doing comics. Mm. He's such an amazing presence on Twitter. He's someone that, you know, millions of people listen to. And he takes that responsibility in a really cool way that he's, you know, he uses it to big up films like The Babadook and The Falling, Mm. not just to talk to the kind of fan community, you know, with in-jokes that you might expect he, he comes across as such a lover of a lover of cinema such a genial presence um and and as you said like an, an artist who really knows every aspect of and the I, film I th- industry i think that's the, the thing that you mentioned about him writing novels and and doing comics and stuff like that i think the big thing that the big takeaway from that is Guillermo is somebody who loves story first and foremost that's what he's a master to and that's what he's a slave to and it's not necessarily about like he's not a filmmaker he's a storyteller and whether the best way to tell that story is on the page or on a comic book page or in a tv series or on the screen like the novel series he wrote with Chuck Hogan who wrote The Town um The Strain which got made into a tv series uh, the tv series is great but that novel series is just fanta- fantastic and what you said about him on Twitter as well is like, he's, he's just a lover of story. Like he shares sculptures that he adores because they tell a story. He shares comics that he loves because they tell a story. And I think, I think that's honestly one of the big takeaways for me is when somebody has such a passion and love for a thing, it really, it really rubs off on you, especially if you share that passion. Mm. It came as a real shock to me to realize he'd only directed nine features because he seems like someone who's been present in contemporary film. I mean, Kronos is 1993, so mm. that's like ah, 25 years ago. But that that he is such an auteur and a, a, a one of the first like real world auteurs as well, coming from Mexico, making films in, in America and in Spain, in English and Spanish. And um, now, you know, do, like doing the oculus rift pacific rim it seems like he should have made way 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 more films than that and of course he has as a writer and a producer i think part of that is that he is sort of the king of the unmade projects his name is always in the news because he's always announcing Mm -hmm. things like justice league dark and the incredible hulk tv show and pinocchio frankenstein at the mountains of madness madness slaughterhouse five so many others he's also he was also uh uh, this is I don't know if this is actually out there in the world yet because I got told this by someone behind the scenes, but he was he was slated to direct The Hobbit, and what I got told was that one of the reasons he might not have done that is that his uh, script, when he went away to, to work on the draft, uh, he came back and it had vampires and stuff in it that was not in the yeah. book. <laughs> so that was... Uh, that, that so was how that would have been so much better film than the first Hobbit film. It would have, it would have been an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting path not taken. But um, Del Toro, I mean, you're right, is such a force of nature. He's such a, a, an amazing film-loving personality. And I've always sort of... I've always felt like I haven't connected with his films, even though I was really properly introduced to him with Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, and Hellboy 2, of which I love. Like, I think Pan, oh, Pan's so Labyrinth is, like, his, his, his masterpiece. 
Um, and sort of re-watching these, I've been trying to figure out where does he lose me and where does he win me back. And I think the the most uh, potent examples of this for me is he, he loses me with Pacific Rim, and I think it's because it's a science fiction, and science fiction is about rules, and I don't quite buy the rules in, in, in this film. I know I'm, I'm pretty much alone on this one, but the, I, I think because he's such a... Uh, I don't know what's he he feels his way through films. His films are about emotion and when he made Crimson Peak, I think the Tim Burton comparison is a brilliant one because Crimson Peak is the film that Dark Shadows failed to be and this is mm. for me peak if you'll excuse me peak del Toro. It is a gothic soap opera fantasy uh, and I just you know with lots of violence and this is uh I I was uh I was completely won over by this film, and I think I really love it when he goes when he goes grand and he goes camp, and you've got Tom Hiddleston when he goes full Del Toro. <laughs> when he goes full Del Toro, and uh, and and this was quite pleasing to me to sort of find out, finally figure out um, who Del Toro is to me at least, and I think uh, yeah, the the gothic filmmaker, the the gothic fantasist with horror is 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 for me what he's all about. I was ruined because the first Del Toro I saw at the cinema was The Devil's Backbone. Oh, um, God. So not, not really knowing very much about him as a filmmaker. So I feel like I have the opposite relationship to him, Lee, that when he, the more full Del Toro he goes, the more I'm like, oh, spare me. <laughs> and maybe it's like growing up in England and reading the Brontes, I don't feel like I need that the kind of super theatrical gothic thing that is going on right now with like um not only um crimson pete but like park chamwick doing the handmaiden and stuff and everyone else is super excited about it and i'm like it's so done it's been done mm. but I, I would actually count devil's backbone as part of that sort of soap opera family of of pan's labyrinth and and uh crimson peak it's uh i mean it's it's a very it's a very personal film to him for many reasons he says his uncle came back as a ghost in real life so i'd love to prosecute that some more mm. um but this is he <laughs> he, uh, he uh considers devil's backbone a sibling film with pan's labyrinth with this is the brother film and pan is the sister for film. sure and interestingly the two lead actors in backbone turn up as soldiers in pan's labyrinth which is set in spain six years later and i find this particularly interesting because if there was ever someone who was to build a shared cinematic universe in more of a sort of Lovecraft, Stephen King, or even Philip Jose Farmer way, more than a Marvel sense, I think it would be Guillermo del Toro. I think he is someone whose works should sort of exist for the most part in this in a singular world. That's really fascinating about um, I, the actors. I, you know, you, you sort of recognise them, but because he doesn't, you know, tend to work with stars mm. so much in his non-Hollywood films, it does just feel like it's a shared world what i love about devil's backbone is its simplicity and it's it's intimacy and maybe that's what i'm missing in you know i really i enjoyed i blade 2 a lot and i enjoyed hellboy um hellboy 2 i have some sort of questions about so i i feel like i want to sit him down and say to him go intimate i'm just going to give you like a 500k budget and see what you can do with that and use practical effects and 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 really bring the actors to the foreground like i really when it was announced he was going to do the hobbit i was like oh he's going to get so lost in like the epic scape 
a scope of, of making films for that scale of audience and I mm. kind of want to see what would happen if you went back to stories like Kronos which are so much the project of you know his very particular imagination and, and we should say also he is probably the most entomologically obsessed of uh, of mainstream filmmakers like the insects and the clockwork just really go together oh seriously so that is so true and um <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted. I've always wanted to do an interview with Guillermo del Toro because I just. I would. I feel like it would be a mess. I'd just like disintegrate into like a heaving puddle of like screaming. I love your work. <laughs> but the closest I ever got was I was at um, San Diego Comic Con in the US, and it was um, it was when he just announced Pacific Rim. And I was on the con floor and there was like, it, it, you know, it's it's like a zombie apocalypse movie. There's people everywhere. It's just a heaving body of people. And then for some reason the crowd just parted and I was looking the opposite direction to where he was coming. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. Okay, great. Like I've, you know, I've had a bit of a window here. I can actually move through and like walk like a human. And I spun around and I literally bounced off his belly and then back <laughs> a few steps because um, he he'd walked up right behind me and he kind of like, grabbed my shoulder and steadied me and it was like oh sweet child and then like just waddled on past with his security guards and I was just like standing there like had nothing to say could barely even formulate words like that was Guillermo del Toro and all I did was like just collide with his body and then <laughs> kind of stand there open mouth wanting to scream I love everything you've ever done but um yeah I just he's one of those people where I feel like if you were ever to sit down and do a proper interview with him you would want it to be five hours because there's so much detail in all his work and there's so much detail in his career that you would just want to go into it all. And I, more than anything, would really like the keys to his, um, not sure exactly what the name of it is, but I call it the Monster Mansion. And so he has a house that he lives in with his family in LA. And then there's another house and it's like just his workplace. And it's just full of horror movie and monster memorabilia and like, life-size um Lou Cheney like models and stuff like that and his kids are too scared to go in it because it's just full of horror movie bits and pieces and like I just I would just kill to run rampage through that place just to live in the spare room you know mm. <laughs> I reckon if you got the chance to do that interview he would way more want to talk about other people's work you oh, know I'd be happy to <laughs> I'd come back he, to work it would just be like this tour of do, sort of but... <laughs> you know like there is a there's a great extra on the Crimson Peak um, release where he talks about sort of his personal history of of the Gothic and Gothic cinema and you know Hitchcock and and everything and I figure that that the interview you keep trying to get him to like it's okay so tell me about this thing in 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 Kronos or whatever and he would just be he'd give you this whole history of film mm. yeah it's it's interesting I uh, this hadn't occurred to me until you were talking about sort of him with with other IPs and um the idea of I'm trying to figure out if this is actually consistent but I I think it's almost right before he announces he's going to go and do some big uh film controlled by someone else if he's going to do the Incredible Hulk TV series if he's going to do Justice League Dark that falls through and then he ends up making a really personal film that originates from him and I think there's almost, you can see the path not travelled with Mimic, his second film. Um, I, th- I think it's a very fun film. It's got a lot of fans, rightly so. It's a very Del Toro film. But if you blindfolded me and showed me the film, I w- wouldn't be able to see it because this metaphor doesn't quite work. But I, 
if if I had to guess, I would I would pick it as a dimension film before a Del Toro film. There was that house style of Miramax and particularly dimension films in the nineties, and I think there there were filmmakers who were sort of getting sucked into that sort of level of, of American cinema that's very. It's got a house style. It's very sort of unremarkable, and and even though that hadn't happened to him, that Mimic is very very Del Toro. I could see him going down that path if he hadn't sort of pulled back and gone and done something like The Devil's Backbone, uh, this intensely mm. personal film, and sort of realigned himself. On the other hand, you have something like Blade and then Hellboy, you know, properties that belong to other people that he came in, and there's no mistaking them for anything other than Del Toro films. So maybe he was never yeah. in any danger of this. I don't know. But then also he remains true to the property, and I feel like this is the thing um, so often with... Uh, what's the right way to say it so often with adaptions um i think sometimes like whether it's novel to screen or tv series to to film series or whatever it is or comic book series to film so often um a lot of the times things don't work is because they lose touch with the themes and the tone of the series if you're losing the very essence of what it's all about you can change a lot of things you actually have a lot of liberties but if you're giving up the essential core elements of what that thing is about that's when you get into into really tricky waters, I think, and that is why things like, um, particularly Blade Two, um, why I think that movie works, because he really understood that character, and he really kind of understood the duality that that character faced. But at the same time, he understood that it needed to look fucking cool, and mm-hmm. it needed to have those key elements of like that sort of like zany mishmash of characters, but at the same time have action beats every few minutes and have horror beats and have things that people hadn't necessarily seen before. I also really love, this is kind of unrelated to his film work, but how he's basically been the guy. And I swear to God, you can just like trace this back going like note by note. Hey, he's like single-handedly appropriated vampirism and pop culture to that point where it is, everyone just looks like a hibiscus flower Venus flytrap. <laughs> where, like, the mouth is, like, unfolding. And I swear to God, that's just, like, him and him alone, you know? It's just, like, that is now considered sort of, like, oh, yeah, it's, like, one of three or four ways a vampire can look. And I'm, like, yeah, but before, you know, Guillermo del Toro, I I feel like it was you had two choices. It was, like, pointy teeth or, like, pointy teeth and scrunched-up face. Those were your (laughs) options. (laughs) Definitely. And, that and you know, much was made of that that design and the uh, the vaginal nature of those... uh, of those vampiric mouths, uh, which is a whole... Loved it. Loved yeah. it. I, need, we, I, feel like, I feel like we need to remind male audience members more how dangerous a vagina can be. Like, I feel like that's just something we need to repeat, you know, for a, for a few more decades until they really fucking get the message. <laughs> well, Over an hour on this episode of Boob Support. <laughs> yes. But also, that's the other thing, is, like, you think of the movies that Guillermo's done, and, like, a lot of them have been big mainstream blockbusters and stuff mm. like that, but even in his smaller films, he's always had really great representation of race and women. He's always... Absolutely. Yeah, like, he's always had a... a yeah. And maybe that is because he's Spanish or comes from a different background. But then again, I call bullshit on that, because M. Night Shyamalan was Indian, yet he still whitewashed The Last Airbender. So just because you are from a diverse background doesn't necessarily mean you incorporate that into your work. But I feel like he's always had a really conscious understanding of the fact that the world is made up of human beings and those human beings are of different genders, are of different races, are of different body types and ages and sexualities. And his films have always felt super inclusive to me. Um, And 
I feel, yeah, like Mako Mori for me from Pacific Rim was a great character. And people always hold up that movie as an example of a movie that doesn't pass the Bechdel test, which is just one indicator, to be fair. But it's a movie that doesn't pass the Bechdel test, but it created its own test. And people call it the Mako Mori test because it's a female character who has her own agency and her own drive and her own background and story, which isn't defined or steered by a male in any way, shape, or form. And I feel like that's true throughout his work. So often a lot of these um, genre films, it will be a, a male protagonist or like a masculine hero navigating through these worlds of horrors. And I love that he's like, ah, fuck it. We'll put a little girl front and center. <laughs> Let her go with like, you know, the flesh eating fairies. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. I think he's, he strikes me as someone who follows his passions and an example of someone who can do that without that having the fanboy problem of that being exclusive to that actual world of human beings that, you know, he's someone who's really respected in the fan world because of how he, you know, took on Hellboy and he took on Blade and the fact that, you know, he came to Hellboy first as a comic. Um, I heard him tell the story that it was while he was shooting Mimic in Toronto that, that this is, you know, I had to come back to the Toronto story <laughs> that he was going to the great late lamented uh, Silver Snail on Queen Street West and buying comics there to stay sane through a freezing Toronto winter. And he discovered Hellboy and then went up for the film as a fan. And I think that's gained him the respect of, of fandom. And then people will go and see films where they're like, OK, well, this has a woman of colour as a co-protagonist. And that puts him in a position of such... Um, like strength and I think he really he plays to it like I'm really interested to see what he does next because Crimson Peak was was very white and very gothic and Victorian and very felt like this big A-list film um, you know is he going to do a you know the live action Disney or Hellboy 3 or something personal that we just don't even know about yet that is brewing through the frustrations of working on those bigger projects mm, totally agree yeah for sure well, it's been amazing to go back through his films and and, uh, and rediscover them. And uh, thank you very much, Maria, for uh, for joining us and uh, reintroducing us to Del Toro. No worries. Not that I think he needed a reintroduction. You guys were all across this shit like <laughs> Ants at the Picnic. <laughs> no, well, no, no, no. It was good to, you know, plunge back into the labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> we were all pan exploring this labyrinth together. <laughs> that I couldn't have put it better. Thank you very much, Maria, and uh, and we will see the rest of you next month. Yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot. <laughs>